1: I might've gone a completely different direction because there is something about human centered design, which I did not find when I was in college that kind of drew me in. And I think that something is what keeps me in. And I think it's, it's the human piece. It's the piece of, Oh, all of these skills I have that I built in not social work, but societal work, work with people Mm. is really actually important.
0: Hello and welcome to This Is 8CD. My name is Jerry Scullion, and I'm a designer, educator and host of This Is 8CD based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. Now, our goal here is to have conversations that inspire and help move the dial forward for organisations to become more human-centred in their approach to solving complex business and societal problems. If you're new around here, let me tell you a little bit about This Is 8CD. It started its life off in Sydney whilst I lived there for nearly 14 years. And we've been creating content for over five years, all for the love of sharing knowledge to the global design community. Now, at the moment, this podcast is my main focus in my career, and growing it is my number one goal. Now, if you want to leave a review, preferably a five-star one, folks, I'd really love it. It takes a couple of minutes, but it's one of the most important things you can do to show support. Every little helps. Also, we launched a space on ThisIsHateCD.com where you can take some of my courses in visualization, design research, user experience, and service design. Check it out. Now, in this episode, I speak with Lydia Hooper, a humanity-centered designer based in Colorado in the United States. And we connected recently off the back of some stakeholder mapping essentials course, which Lydia had taken, which is proof that I'm always open to connecting and interviewing with people, even on support tickets, okay? So we chat about non-violent communication. And we talk about Lydia's own design principles and values that she uses to guide her career and how she managed to form these at such an early stage of her career as an educator. We touch on Lydia's work at the fantastic Design Justice Network also. It's a fantastic one. So folks, let's jump straight in. Lydia Hooper, how's it going? How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. It's so wonderful to be here.
0: Tell us, where are you coming from today?
1: I live in Denver, Colorado, in the United Denver, States. Denver, Colorado,
0: one of my favorite cities in the whole world. I've been there before. We were just chatting about how amazing it is as a city to live and uh, the dangers of, of living so high in the, the sky. Um, I was there close to 10 years ago. And I remember I, uh, I nearly passed out with uh, the altitude. How long have you lived in Denver?
1: A long time, about 15 years,
0: Whoa, which okay, is a cool. long
1: time for a resident a lot
0: of people come and go
1: it's
0: grown a lot now Lydia tell us a little bit about yourself how do you describe what you do
1: well it depends on who I'm talking to to be honest you're talking to me (laughs) but to you
0: say you were talking to you're you're at a Thanksgiving party which I know is coming up soon someone you didn't know and they're like so Lydia what do you do how would you describe it to them
1: Yes, I think I usually just simply say I'm a designer, knowing that folks might or might have an idea of what that is or might not. But usually they might
2: ask
0: you to do a logo.
1: Yeah, that's true. They usually do think graphic designer. They actually oh, usually is- ask, what do you design? And I'll say I design experiences. And that starts a really interesting conversation.
0: Yeah. It does, and especially when you add another lens on top of that, which you have have in your website of a humanity-centered designer. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, Tell us what you mean by humanity-centered, and a lot of our listeners will probably have a decent stab at that, but I'd love to hear your understanding and your interpretation.
1: Yeah, I think I've taken to some aspects of human-centered design, and I think like Mm -hmm. many designers, I also have some critiques and questions. Yeah. I feel the term human-centered is not specific enough because I've seen different humans be centered. Sometimes it's not the user. Sometimes it's not the person who's being impacted by the design. Um, So some of it comes down to that. I think the other part of it is I'm someone who's concerned with the collective good. Hmm. I'm someone who wants to design things um, as much for people as for... Um, kind of hesitate to use this word, but progress. Mm-hmm. Who wants to see um, the best or better angels prevail in technology, yeah. specifically? And I feel that that is a little bit more accurate. That I'm concerned about, you know, the various impacts of what we're designing.
0: Absolutely. So, you're touching on a few of the short shortcomings there for human centered design. Um, what other elements of human centeredness do you feel is lacking like you you mentioned there about the framing of which human is at the centre when you're designing but there was other pieces there that when we were speaking in the prelude we were talking a little bit more around where where me currently I'm apathetic towards design because the design that I fell in love with in the 90s when I started in university a long long time ago folks um, it was it's a different design to what it is today like you know Mm -hmm. In your experience, um, how has design changed for you personally over Uh, the last decade?
1: That's a great question. I think it has been an exploration of both, you know, looking outward and seeing what's possible for the field, what's possible for someone who calls themselves a designer Mm -hmm. and seeing the field evolve. And i think simultaneously it's been an inner journey of what's important to me about this work and how do i continue to be true to that um, and also in some sort of internal inquiry about mm. what's important and how i'm making sure that's a very profound aspect of my practice
0: i mean from my own personal experience i did industrial design so um, i remember oh. My first job when I was, you know, just out, we finished universities in in May in Europe. My first job, I started in September. and um, I was like so excited to go in on day one. So I was so naive. Like, you're going to design a blister pack. And I'm like, what's a blister pack? And I'm like, to hold the batteries. And I'm like, whoa, a double-edged shit sword where I'm going to be grading uh, batteries to go into landfill and the package to go into right. landfill as well. And I remember saying, this this is kind of not where I want to be. And I then get, in, get into UX, or at that stage it was, you know, kind of um, computer interface stuff. Uh, but it's, it's evolved from that into something that is kind of murky and something murky. that's a little bit more dirty. For me anyway, it is personally, um, where businesses have got hold of it, this process that is just contributing to, or compounding the problem really that we're we're all seeing in the world. But the follow-on from this question is, am I in a bubble? And mm-hmm. are we at a point in time where designers collectively are doing more introversion, where they're thinking a lot more around their place in the situation we find mm. ourselves
1: in? I think that is important for us to be asking. I feel like mm-hmm. I might be in a bubble too. But I also, when you ask that thought, I think people in general are asking questions they haven't asked before just because of the state of the world. Yeah. Because of where we're at collectively, the things that have transpired over the last couple of years mm. um, through the pandemic. I think people in general, I mean, in America, we hear about this, the great resignation. I mean, that's like one signal to me, that people are asking themselves questions. So I think there's reason to believe that that's happening. I also Mm -hmm. feel like there were some critiques of design thinking for really the last several years, but it feels like in more recent years, there has been responses. So not just critiques and saying this doesn't work, but like folks trying to say, and how about if we try doing it this way instead? Yeah. And I find yeah, that encouraging.
0: I mean the, the Natasha Jen story when it when it broke in twenty eighteen, it had collective gasps <laughs> amongst the design community of like, oh, you can't say that. You can't say design thinking is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um but you can. Um and I don't I don't necessarily believe it by the way. I don't believe that design thinking is mm-hmm. um is bullshit. I think it's done a huge amount of good for um the design collective globally, yeah. but how it's being used and the hands that it's been placed in um, and who is championing it as well. Like, you know, that big consultancy begins with I and ends in <laughs> DO. Um, they all have roles to play in and how that has been seen and how it's actually been evolved. Um, but in my own sense, I can talk more and more about this mm-hmm. But we spoke there a little bit earlier around um, privilege. Mm -hmm. And um, I said to you, what are you, what project were you most uh, proud of? Mm -hmm. Maybe let's take the conversation back up from that point. Um, How did you respond to that question?
1: Yeah, I said, I think what I am most proud of is that I have kept my principles. Mm. Hmm. really vital to my practice. And so I have not, I've stepped away from opportunities, um, and work that I felt would compromise them. And I, I think it's interesting that you speak about this word privilege because it does make you, of course, anyone hearing that would ask, you know, must be nice. And to be honest, Jerry, I, I do want to communicate. It is hard I have mm-hmm. not done it without difficulty and I'm not going to yeah. go into a lot of my own personal stories about that difficulty.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: I am kind of asking listeners to just take my word for it that I have the scars. Yeah. <laughs> I'm certainly not trying to stand on a pedestal and say I'm so great. I'm trying to say I've survived. Yeah. And it I'm is proud it of is that.
0: hard. Are you okay to talk a little bit more, not about the personal side of stuff? I I wouldn't want to sort of put myself in that situation and also ask you to put you in that situation as well. But um, the principles piece is something Mm -hmm. that I teach about when I'm teaching my portfolio course, usually with emerging talent who attends that course. Mm -hmm. We talk about... um, Aligning yourself to your principles and trying to stay true to them helps mm-hmm. with a better career trajectory and and so forth. What are your principles, and how did you define them? Yeah,
1: so I think when I started, there were a couple things. It was not clearly articulated, but I want to be clear. I had these principles before I even was thinking about my work as design.
0: Okay, so it's before you went to uni or before you, yes, maybe maybe when, when you're in school. So you're. I'm, I'm making a um, a pocketbook psychology and you're, you're a deep thinker.
1: Yes. Um, I read this article that James Vittori mm. wrote, wrote in Print Magazine a few years ago. And in it, he talks about how designers should have careers before they go into design. Mm. And it was the first time I'd heard someone in the design field who I highly respect basically validating that that was my journey and it absolutely has informed my work. My first careers were in informal education, primarily yeah. early childhood, so very young children, and therapeutic body work. And through those careers I established ethics. Yeah. About how I wanted to show up in the workplace, who I wanted to be at work. And I carried that in. And in fact, Jerry, interesting story when I did go to school, um yeah which was a whole journey in and of itself that we can go into if you want. Um, I resisted going into design studies. Okay. Because what I saw in the folks who were in those tracks was a lack of that, and I was kind of repelled.
0: I agree. There's, there seems to be um, a lack of the ethical... Piece across the board and in many of the academic institutions where they, they teach about research and um, sort of, it's like an excavation process of mining, data mining humans. And um, not enough of that work goes on. Like, in fact, only recently I spoke to Ricardo Martins who's in Savannah College in um, the US. Mm-hmm. They do it. And it's the first. It's the first time I've heard someone who Really explore that side of design and the uh-huh. position of design and the position of trauma and and lots more. We, we we could probably delve a little bit deeper on. Um, but on terms of you, you know you've explored lots of different roles. You explored who you were as a person before you entered into that world. Yes, that that, that sounds like it takes um an awful lot from a person to to be able to do that kind of work. Um. How has that stayed you in in the last I don't know maybe decade I suppose I'm just you know looking yes. through your your website here had had you not had those principles in place where do you think you'd be?
1: It's an interesting uh, paradox because yeah. I think I probably wouldn't be in design either.
0: Mm, well, that's a really interesting one. Okay, so without the principles, you believe you just wouldn't I might have.
1: I might've gone a completely different direction because there is something about human centered design, which I did not find when I was in college that kind of drew me in. And I think that something is what keeps me in. And I think it's, it's the human piece. It's the piece of, Oh, all of these skills I have that I built in not social work, but societal work, work with people Mm. is really actually important. And I can kind of, build on that and come from that place and be able to have a impact or influence that's more than just a one-to-one yeah because i love working with children and and even adults you know um in that one-to-one way but design has such potential for collective impact
0: yeah it's funny um for me, bringing it back, it's all about me, folks, today. It shouldn't be, but it should be about Lydia. When I look at where design is at and, um, you know, I, I educate businesses and I, I educate practitioners as well on how they can actually do things a little bit better. It's my my doorbell, folks. It's, I'll turn this one to silent. The the place where I tend to land when I think about the future of design is not working with businesses in and, and longer form. It's usually in schools. And it's usually in not high schools, it's usually in primary schools or I don't know what they're called in the U.S. Um, what do you call schools where simplified elementary, elementary teaching ethics and teaching design skills and exploratory skills mm-hmm. at that age group? So it's fascinating for me to hear that you've come from that world. Um, I spoke to somebody at Creator Good Studio called René Albrecht, mm-hmm. who came from a um, teaching background as well. I want to explore that one a little bit further, if mm. you'd allow me to. Sure. Um, what skills did you learn um, working with kids, mm. apart from patience?
1: I mean, that's definitely part of it. Yeah. What I like most about working with children and what I miss is their innate curiosity. Yeah. And I know some adults, some adults might actually find that annoying. Like they want to know why about everything, and they're always asking, "How does this work?" and "Why do you feel that way?" And um, yeah. but I just love that. I just love the openness that they have to new experiences. And so it's interesting because your question is kind of what I've learned, and and maybe you expected me to answer like as a teacher, but actually. I think I was, you know, inspired and learned from those children. Those children Mm. taught me.
0: Yeah, that's what it sounds like.
1: Yes. They taught me about being present in the moment. How much is possible when you are there in the moment. They taught me about how emotional humans are. You know, a child just, I I mean, you have young children, so you know just Mm. within a moment can completely turn an emotional corner. Yeah. You know, they're not guarded. They're not they're not yet socialized to not do that. Yeah. And that you know, but they're so present to what is coming up for them in the moment and I learned a lot about how to hold space for that and how to honor that that's part of the human journey to have those raw emotions and mm. there's a vulnerability in being a child. You're you're so dependent on the adults around you.
2: And, Absolutely,
0: but well, in just bringing yeah. it back to the the principles piece, like you, you worked um, with young children as well, and you may mm-hmm. hear some young children in the background, folks. It's getting to that time and of the day where, where my children arrive, and I, I love leaving the sounds of my home into into my podcast. So. Um, But how did this affect your your principles? Because we we mentioned there that Mm -hmm. if you hadn't have nailed your principles, and I'm sure your your principles, by the way, have have evolved and iterated Mm -hmm. over the Mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. But um, for people listening there, there's an an awful lot of people that I've coached and stuff that really haven't taken a step back and kind of defined what their principles were. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to me that um, what you've said there around um, having lots of different roles and different opportunities to to help kind of shape those principles. Was there anything else that you did during that that period that helped you um, define those?
1: You know, I'm remembering um, that that was also the time when I started. It, it comes back to that piece around just being present and in the moment, and that was the time when I started some mindfulness practices, which have now now I feel like is more. It's not weird for me to say that and um, people will yeah. know what I'm referencing. <laughs> but at yeah. that time it was it was fairly obscure. I grew up in Kentucky.
2: Um,
1: yeah. so, you know, Buddhist principles are there, but certainly not as predominant as, you know, Christian practices. So, Yeah. I think that was also pretty important to me integrating what I was learning in those settings and feeling like I could um mm. carry it
2: forward.
0: It's it's interesting you say that because um I see the role of designer being very asymmetrical if you want to other professions such as um doctors or nurses or anyone in this space where there's some self-care or psychologists. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um whereas in design when we're forced to do when I say forced, we're obviously we're not forced out the door to do research. But we don't have those self-care principles taught yeah. to us at university that really allow us to get in touch with um, the triggers and understanding like the the precursors to why we might find resistance in our careers. Um, I've been in a therapy okay, and I've done an awful lot of internal work, which has allowed me to explore who I am as a person. And I know what I'm about, what I'm not about. Mm-hmm. And it's helped me on that journey. So it sounds like there's a there's there's an opportunity there for design um that I'm hearing in in your story mm-hmm. to include that that work that internal work which obviously for you has led to a greater outcome in in your career. Is that a fair assumption, do you think, Lydia?
1: Yeah, there's a lot I could say about that. I think as a field what I see is a lot of folks Thinking about the practice as the ability to execute specific deliverables
2: mm-hmm.
1: and potentially to apply specific methods. And I feel like the principles piece is what's lost. It's I'm remembering that interview you did with Rachel Dekas and Tad. Tad Hirsch? Yes. About practicing without a license and how thinking about licensed professionals, are accountable for doing mm-hmm. that internal work because the impact that they have on others you know they need they need to be accountable for that and that i do agree
0: K. A., actually just to g- give credit i i, I ah. would not take it. it was with ka <laughs> mccurcher and tat and um rachel dicas who was another person on the call which has eluded me and i sorry sorry to cut across you there but i wanted to give credit to that episode as opposed to letting it slide.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so I very much think that this is something that needs a lot of attention in the design profession and where we're at maturity wise, hopefully it's folks are aware and ready um, because it's not like I'm advocating that we all need to have licenses, but we don't need to have a legal requirement, you know, to lean into the reality, which is, if we are engaged in any kind of user research, and even without that, even if we're just in an organization in which we're butting up against status quo norms and a variety of different personalities, we can absolutely use more skills around relational skills, is what I call them. I don't like calling them soft skills. Yeah. Um, relational skills. And that includes a relationship with ourself.
0: Yeah, I think that's, um, it probably leads us into a, into a talk that you, you did for inclusive design 24, um, where empathy is broken and the sort of interconnectedness of compassion. Um, are you okay to talk a little bit more around that one? Cause I know you were, you are meant to give that talk recently, um, but This talk is on, on YouTube as well. It was actually Rachel Dekas who who pointed me this t- towards this um, when I mentioned that I was speaking um, to you today. Um, where did this, this talk come from?
1: Interesting. Uh, it came from a practice that I've developed that I'm starting to see as really integral to my design practice, and that is a practice in nonviolent communication. So non-violent I talked about
0: communication Is that we said nonviolent, okay, Excellent.
1: nonviolent communication. So I talked about how, <laughs> you know, my roots are in education, that openness, yep. that curiosity, right? And that has really been the bleeding edge for me. I'm going to go out there and with my set of principles, and I don't know what's going to happen. Am I going to call myself a designer or not? I don't know right yeah. and and slowly over time there's this evolution of what i'm able to attract and find that helps me maintain that yeah. journey and nonviolent communication has become so critical to that for me that i started and i was hearing a lot in the field particularly from design leaders of color yeah that empathy is something that gets talked about in design, but it's not really a reality. Yeah. And I started really recognizing how, I mean, that's so core to the practice of nonviolent communication that I started to realize how much that practice is so critical and how much I want to share it with others who, Mm. again, might find that they have a need for that not from a place of y'all need to know this because that's actually antithetical to nonviolent communication more from a place of, if you find yourself burnt out, if you find yourself having really intense emotions about your work, whether it's your workplace, your profession, your colleagues, your users, you know, how, how can we care for ourselves? As you were saying earlier, how can we care for ourselves? And I, I, I pull from a wide variety of tools, and that one has become like a pillar for me.
0: Yeah, can you give um, can you give examples of of, of violent communication?
1: Oh, yes, because that's always what comes up when they hear that phrase. They're like, yeah. "Huh? I'm so confused by know, this phrase."
0: I like to play um, the role of the person driving along at the moment, listening to the podcast, and they might be saying. Nonviolent communication and a way of self identifying is just playing it back to them, so i yes. I'd love to love to hear some examples if you can.
1: I think some of the reason I like that phrase is it does cause you to have yeah. a pause. Um, nonviolent communication is a field that's come out of the teachings of Marshall B. Rosenberg. There are many teachers today um, that are carrying his message forward across the globe and he identified that in cultures mm-hmm. where there's high incidence of violence, violent activities, violent crimes, things that people think of when they think of violence,
2: yeah,
1: highly correlates with use of language that is inherently judgmental.
0: Okay, that's interesting.
1: Yes. That's exactly what his thought was. And so he follows this thread of what would it mean for us to think about communicating without that layer of judgment? Hmm. What would what would that look like? And if you start this practice, my hmm. my experience has been it's incredibly humbling. Yeah. Because you realize how much you know, blaming, even agreeing. Even things that are just inherent, like anything that's inherently evaluative, anything that's ascribing value to what someone is saying um, is what he's referring to. What what he's referring to, if, if he was to say violent communication, I think would be more about communication that tries to exert power over a person. Okay. That is essentially about... Having a attitude of not allowing that person to have choice and wanting to control or force their responses and their actions
0: okay that's that's kind of blowing my mind a little bit at the yeah. moment because i I'm, I'm 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 trying to think of other parallels to that 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 can that can build on this It sounds like it's it's a really first of all, it sounds like it's changed your changed your world um because when you were talking there it was doing an awful lot of kind of deep thinking as you were trying to convey what you were trying to say so this is this formed the basis of the talk that I linked to in the show notes folks um for inclusive design twenty four um How did the talk go down and what what kind of um feedback did you have at the end of it?
1: yeah, I think. What I learned from the feedback was that there's a lot we don't know about empathy and people are very curious about it. Yeah. I was very honest that people had questions that I didn't have answers to. It I actually, after the talk started going out and trying to find research literature around the questions that yeah. were being asked, because I was like, you know, I know there's some folks out there researching this, so let's let's dig out what we can
0: and reference Um, and
1: that's that's another part of my practice is i i do try to reference
0: research um, and credit credit where 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 you can like and when you can it's funny that you say um about compassion and drilling into empathy a little bit more because in the design thinking framework as most people will know and they'll be bobbing along there's a there is a stage in the design thinking framework called empathy which i used to always religiously have the same joke whenever um we'd finish doing research i kind of go what time do we start doing empathy at? And um, it was, it was, it usually got a snigger or a laugh from a couple of my peers, but then other people were just throwing their eyes up to heaven. I says, Do we start the empathy at two o'clock today? Is that the time we begin, begin empathy? And, um, which is a complete dig at the whole kind of framework because it's,
1: yes, yes,
0: it is a little bit shallow, shall we say. Um, but I, years later, I, I gave a talk about, um, moving from empathy to sympathy and um the sympathetic sympathetic mind and how when i was researching groups of vulnerability um it moved empathy moved for me like and i was like sort of looking within and i was like suddenly i wasn't objective enough i I didn't feel like i could be rational and i felt there was a lot more um a lot more emotive pieces happening within my body when i was researching as opposed to you know, the, some of the the normal stuff you might have to do, like mm-hmm. t- typical research, you know, like working for banks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't stimulating my core, whereas this kind of research was having a triggering effect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to hear how you feel. Um, sympathy differs to compassion because, from my my understanding of of the two, they're they're different. Um, But I'd like to get your thoughts on um, when empathy shifts into different areas Uh, of the collective minds.
1: It goes back to the piece about judgment. Okay. When I think when I'm in a sympathetic mode, Mm -hmm. there is an evaluation. Usually my evaluation is along the lines of that person has it worse than me.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's an interest. Yeah. That's, that's kind of where, where my mind was during during that.
1: And Um, what that does is it creates a barrier between myself and that other person, because I'm now looking through that lens when I see them and I'm responding to them through that lens. And that is a power dynamic.
2: Because
1: my belief is that I can help them, that I, that I have more power than them and I can help them. I think there's a lot of that and specifically in the field around design for good.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, isn't that, um, I can help them. I can fix this. I can contribute to good. Are you saying that that's, um, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth there, but saying, are you saying, but I'm interpreting that to mean that that is, there's a risk factor associated with that.
1: I think there is a risk factor associated with that in, in, Comparison, compassion is I'm allowing that person to have the experience that's their experience. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, I'm actually demonstrating to them my belief in their inherent ability to be themselves and that that is enough. Does that make sense as kind of an example between the two?
0: Yeah, it does. I mean, like, there's there's a whole world of conversations we can probably go deeper into um, on this topic. But I know from just looking at your LinkedIn, um, I don't know when you posted that. It's a couple of weeks ago. Though. Um, mm-hmm. There was lots of people chatting about that talk in particular. So I'll put a link to that, and I'll put a link to it link to the video on LinkedIn as well so they can join that conversation as well. So it's not just separate threads all over the place melting your brain, Lydia. <laughs> um, but I like I've really enjoyed chatting with you with you today, like you know. Um, I want to thank you for, for being so open. And I know some of the questions were quite probing. Um, and thanks for responding to them with, you know, with grace. Um, so I really, really appreciate it giving me that time and, and that focus as well. If people wanted to reach out to you and connect with you, um, how might they do that?
1: Yes, please do feel free to reach out to me. The best way to do that is either through my website or LinkedIn. I do want to say say one more thing that I didn't mention with principles. I I did talk about how there's been this evolution. There's been these pulling Mm -hmm. these threads together and all of these things that have come from largely the fields outside of design that have really supported my practice. But the thing I didn't mention is that in the last couple of years, the articulation of the design justice network principles has been absolutely pivotal for this field. I wouldn't even just say for me. Yeah. And so if I think that folks who are younger or newer to the profession, have a huge leg up in that they might not need to come up with things from scratch. Those principles are, Really robust, informed by the design practice. So it's not one person who invented them. They came out of a collective conversation and are being practiced the world over. So it's not impossible to find people who are trying to put them into application and be able to have conversations with those people. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely, yeah, totally warranted. And we'll put a link to the Design Justice Network um, on the fantastic work that they have done over the last number of years as well. So that's a great shout out. Lydia, thanks so much for your time. Have a great weekend and I'll chat to you soon.
1: Thank you, Jerry. It was wonderful to be here.
0: There you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you enjoyed it and want to listen to more, why not visit thisishatecd.com where you can learn more about what we're up to and also explore our courses whilst you're there. Thanks again for listening.